Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada's Auditor General came out with a report on Canada's public health agency that is nothing short of truly damning. How could our federal health professionals fail so spectacularly when we need the most? We'll talk about that. We've heard the Supreme Court of Canada's verdict on the legality of the federal carbon pricing program, but does that mean the fight is over? I don't think so. And Ontario's education minister says they're seriously considering keeping online learning as a permanent option for students. Harvey Bischoff, president of the Secondary School Teachers Federation, joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, Supreme Court ruling wasn't the only action going on on uh, Parliament Hill yesterday. Also, the Auditor General's uh, report came out. Auditor General Karen Hogan uh, had a lot to say about the uh, the government's uh, response to the COVID-19 crisis. And, uh, well, it's uh, it's not flattering stuff. Uh, hey, you know, yeah, spoiler alert, who knew that was coming, right? Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you back with us. Uh, hey, how you ho- hope you're doing well these days. Getting by, buddy, getting by. Good. Well, that's about as all as we can bet. Uh, you, you've seen some of the, the highlights of the report here from uh, the Auditor General. Uh, she says a withered public health agency dithered on pandemic preparedness. The federal Auditor General has concluded uh, that uh, they were unprepared, uh, and on and on it goes. Uh, here's, here's the thing that caught me, though. It says that uh, seeming to, to who can agree on who's going to do what and when and who's going to report to whom and who's going to take responsibility uh, just wasn't happening. Now, in fairness, Badger, that's only been going on since Confederation. But, I mean, you would have thought that in a crisis situation, uh, these guys could have got their act together. Well, and that's what that's the uh, part of the report that really struck me is that, you know, th- this is not news. But she said, basically, this can't continue to go on, this bickering and fighting with the uh, provinces and the federal government, particularly over, you know, such essential things is trying to protect people during a pandemic. I mean, there should be no should be no argument. There, you know, people should get together, the provinces, the federal government should get together and say, this is what we're doing. But she said not only was the federal government not prepared, it was exacerbated by the fact that the provinces weren't were trying to do their own thing, were trying to ignore what the federal government was doing at the beginning. So it was just a, a gong show right from the very beginning. And, and they realize the problem, and, and I know, I mean, you've covered this for years, and, and, and you know, well, first of all, I mean, you know, when Stephen Harper was Prime Minister, he didn't even have uh, conferences between the Premiers and, and, and uh, the, the First, first Ministers. Minister it just, it just no. wasn't going to happen. He just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, you know, they've attempted to do this. Obviously, the COVID thing has thrown a monkey wrench into this, but... And I don't expect everybody, and you know, you've written about this over the years, to, to you know, form a circle and start singing kumbaya. Uh, but at the same time, you'd like to think that okay, can we set our differences aside and try to get over this crisis first? And on the surface, as you recall, a year or so ago, you know, we were, were told about these conference calls with the press, prime minister and the premier, and we got the sense that hey, maybe that's happening. But according to the AG's report, no, it wasn't. Well, that certainly. Uh, yeah. That's unfortunate because we were misled if that's the case. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll all expect, we'll, we'll always expect tensions between the provinces and the federal government. That's just the way it's built. It, but to think that they just couldn't get along to even pro- make progress on this, and, and now to, you know, to find out that, uh, you know, we were told that he, he, we were all getting along, we've had, we've had calls going into the federal government, and Back and forth, and everything's just great. 
Well, now it turns out that wasn't so great and, and possibly didn't even happen. I, I, you know, there's an overriding question. It goes to the Supreme Court decision. It goes to this information in the AG's report, too. Is I don't know, you know, so many years after Confederation, Badger, if we've even made up our minds about what we are and who we are. You know, are we a federal government, a, a government, a, a nation, or are we just a collection of, of ten provinces and two territories with their own rules uh, that get together every now and then with some commonalities? I mean, you know, we've got to decide which way we're going here. Well, it, but, Bill, what it comes down to it, it's not the structure itself, it's the politics, of course. You know, we have a liberal government in power in, in, in Ottawa, and we have conservative governments in power in quite a few of the provinces, and most of them, I guess, right now. And the thing is, that's where the issue is. They, they, don't, want to, they don't want to seem to be uh, playing ball, if you will, with the liberals because we're we're conservatives and we shouldn't we shouldn't be you know helping them out and and it just it it's it just so juvenile that they can't agree to something you know how to fight a pandemic it, it you know it's it's okay when you're talking about other issues like oil or you know to even a certain extent you know uh global warming which i th- think we've found out is uh, the supreme court finds pretty essential too but that's what it is. It's it's just politics. It's just pure politics, deliberately deciding not to to uh, aid or abet the, the federal government because it is a liberal government. If it was a if it was a conservative government, would we be having this problems? I doubt very much we would. Well, not from those premiers, anyway. Uh, you know, and, and the fact that politics is being played here is problematic. Uh, but and it's it 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 overrides just about everything. I mean, it's it's that, that black cloud that hangs over just about every one of these decisions. I mean, the AG basically says here. Here's the line that caught my eye: Canada did not see this pandemic coming, underestimated it initially, and as late as this past November, still lacked the data to fully track or grasp the illness's actual spread. Uh, and that's that's a, a pox on all their houses because it wasn't just the federal government; it was the provinces that were in the same situation. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody took it seriously at first. Well, which is just astounding, quite frankly. You know, having gone through SARS, and we've talked about this before, having gone through SARS, and we didn't learn anything from it, that's, that's mind-boggling. These, 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 these people have these jobs to protect the health and welfare of this country, and we find out they're not doing it. That that just you know I just I can't get my head around that. And the fact that they you know they, they that you know we always hear oh it was a damning report a damning report. Well, believe me, this was a damning report. It peels away the layers that show that we just weren't prepared because a we weren't listening and and b we weren't following the protocols that were previously set. Well, this uh, also shines the light, I think, on past sins, and I, and we have to have that discussion, too. I mean, if we don't acknowledge mistakes from the past, we're never going to be able to overcome these, because it's going to happen again. We know that. Uh, and, and some of the issues that the AG brings up here, I mean, you know, we, we com- complain, and I think justifiably so, that we're not making vaccines in this country. Well, that, that was a decision made by a number of previous governments to simply say, we're not going to fund that stuff anymore. Yeah, come on, that SARS thing was years ago, and we haven't seen one on the horizon, so, you know, let's just cut the funding. Well, they went away. You know, those 
companies aren't stupid. They say, if we're not going to get government support, we're going to Germany. If we're going to go to India, where we're going to get money. Uh, so bad on us. Uh, you know, we had a shortage of PPE a year ago when this thing really started to fester. And then we found out that the governments had stocks and stocks of that after SARS. They threw it out. Ah, we don't need this anymore. They're outdated. I asked a doctor about that. He says, outdated? I don't know what they're talking about. A mask is a mask, you know. Uh, but all of a sudden, they decided they didn't need them anymore. It's like cleaning stuff out in a garage sale. Yeah, just throw that out. We don't need that anymore. Yeah, so yeah, yeah exactly. You know, It is like a garage sale. All of a sudden, you know, you look in the garage and you say, I don't need that stuff anymore. Let's just get rid of it. Well, yeah, you know, and the doctor that you spoke to was absolutely, I couldn't understand that when they said, well, it was outdated. Well, a mask is a mask. I, and I don't know how a paper mask or, you know, the whatever becomes outdated. Uh, maybe it does, but I, I just I just don't see it. And it, let's face it, Bill, this has been, uh, you know, just so badly handled right from the very beginning, and it continues to be badly handled. I don't know when we're ever going to get our, our heads around how we we approach not just the you know fighting the pandemic but also getting people vaccinated we can't even we can't even get that done you read in the papers both in toronto and hamilton you know people calling up and and getting run around you know a friend of ours just was told that she couldn't get a she called into the line the hotline or whatever you want to call it and said she couldn't get one for six weeks and she's and she's a plus plus 75 so I, it, it seems to be so chaotic, it's quite unbelievable. Well, and other countries are doing it better. I mean, that's what makes it even worse for us here, because I know the vaccine situations and the shortages, and, well, we just heard that the, the Moderna supply that we're supposed to get, I guess, today is not going to come in until next week sometime. So that's frustrating. But other countries seem to be overcoming that. And you're wondering, you know, did we have the infrastructure in place? Did we do the homework on this? And clearly what the AG is saying uh, is, no, we didn't. And, and that's, that's, by the way, the healthcare end of it. She also addressed the financial end of it. And these are th- issues that you and I raised and many other people raised, too, uh, back when the CERB was known. And you still remember the government's response then was, look, just apply. All right, if you just apply. We're not even going to screen this. Uh, we'll sort this out later. Well, apparently they haven't sorted it out, and they can't sort it out. And uh, there's a lot of money went out the door that they don't have no idea where it went and who got it. Uh, and they have they refuse to do audits. I mean, that's, that's not the way to run a company, and it's certainly not the way to run a government. Well, that's, I mean, sooner or later they're going to have to come grips with that CERB program and find out. Who got what, when, and how, and how much they got, whether they decided, you know, whether they were determined to actually deserve it. That that may not be coming out right now, but it, it's going to. I mean, that that's a that is a ton of money, and I'm not saying that a ton, you know, an overwhelming number of people beat the system, but you know, and I know that if there's money to be handed out, somebody's going to take advantage of it that doesn't deserve it. Sure they are, and and they have all the time, which is why they're supposed to be a filter. I mean, you know, I, I understand that there was, in some people's minds, there was an urgency for this, in others, not so much. Uh, and the, the fact that there was no vetting process, I, I, well, that's coming back to haunt them. Now, to your point about politics permeating all of this stuff, uh, I want to get your read on uh, the other element that's going on today, too. Of course, uh, the Liberals, uh, Pablo Rodriguez, who is the House leader for the Liberals, uh, says that uh, he and staffers are going to disobey any House of Commons summons uh, from this 
this committee. This is the Political Ethics Committee. Now, I know for some people, political ethics might sound like an oxymoron, but the, the committee exists. Uh, and, and obviously, because this is a minority government, it's dominated by opposition members. Uh, they want the Prime Minister to appear, or at least a number of his staff members to appear, uh, and answer questions about the WE charity affair, uh, about the Armed Forces thing with uh, Minister Sejan, uh, about the pandemic funding, etc., etc. Mr. Rodriguez and others in the Liberal government are saying, look, this is nothing more than a witch hunt. These guys are trying to get talking points for their brochures in the next campaign. Uh, where where are you on this? I mean, you know, ignoring these, these requests is, is one thing. Well, yeah, there's a couple things here. You, you know, you can't, you know, you can't ignore a request from a committee not to appear. Mr. Pablo Rodriguez probably knows a lot more about this than I do, but the point is, if you're issued what I'd call a bench warrant, it's not that, but if you're, if you're told to show up and you don't, then there are ramifications. You know, you're in, it's, yeah, it's well, you're in contempt court. of court. Yeah. You know, I mean, people have to understand that this is very much like a court, like kangaroo court maybe, but it's still more like a court. But what gets me is that, you know, the, the conservatives are crying foul and, you know, and, uh, you know, how dare you, you know, the liberals are saying, how dare you ask for all these people in the conservatives saying, well, we need to get to the bottom of this. Well, I saw the exact opposite when I was in Ottawa, with the liberals calling for all kinds of information and the, and the conservatives saying, no, that's none of your business. You know, we'll do what we want to do. And, and, can you, and they're calling for the prime minister to come to appear before the committee. Can you imagine Harper appearing before a committee? didn't happen it, it didn't happen remember they wanted him before well the senate expense scandal they well, wanted him to testify in a number of staffers we, and and you you just can't the prime minister can appear regardless of what party it is appear every time some jack-in-the-box is you know decided that he you know i'm going to make a big deal here and i'm going to demand that the uh, prime minister show up to this whatever committee i mean it just it's just nonsense but on the other hand uh so the liberals the liberals are just playing the same game that the conservatives played before. Whether we get to the bottom of you know the real details of the, the you know what I'll call the, the we scandal, uh, who knows? It's a minister. Where I do agree with the the uh, liberal or, or Pablo Rodriguez, the House Leader, is that it's usually the the minister him or herself that appears before a committee. Mm-hmm. There's where the buck stops. They're they're the ones that you know should be telling the story, but the problem is, and, and this is a, this is what's dogged politics for quite a few years now, is that no matter what the question is, they never answer it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the problem. So you get you get uh, the opposition party saying, okay, you know, what's the sense of calling? the minister because we won't get anywhere so we'll go do an end run and try and get you know the people that work for them and that's what they're trying to do you know whether it works or not remains to be seen but that that's the background in all this 
but it's it's politics. I mean, is this a, a, a an honest attempt to try to get to the truth, or is this? Uh, well, no, as one of your colleagues told me a couple show. of days ago, as one of your colleagues said to me the other day, he said, "Look at." <laughs> They can't go after the government for COVID, not now, because people are going to say, hey, we need this money, we need these programs. So they're going to, they're, they're dredging up we again, and, and, and obviously the, the Sajan scandal, of course, with the two past heads now of the Canadian military, both of who had to resign because of uh, sexual charges against them, sexual assault charges against them. No. Uh, so it's, it's, okay, let's, let's concentrate on those and, and, and let's try to make headlines with those. And I said, well, that's a pretty cryptic view. And he says, well, you hang around Ottawa a little bit and you'll have the same view. It's, it's the way politics is done these oh, days. It is, but I'll tell you, there's no, there's no shortage of uh, uh, scandals, if you, and I, that's, I use that lightly in most cases, uh, improprieties, let's put it that way, involving the Liberal government. So, I mean, they're going after, they're going after everything they can get their hands on and, uh, and, and trying to nail down the Prime Minister, you know, prior to an election to hopefully get some, gain some ground. This was, this, that's what this is all about. This is trying to get anything they can to take into the election, which, which could come June, it could come in the fall. I believe the fall. I don't think it's going to happen while well, COVID's really still rampant. But that's what it's about. It's, it's, it's trying to gain traction. Well, and it's 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 the game of politics, and it's the way that's being played right now. I mean, they'd love to get the prime minister in front of that committee because those would be the sound bites that they'd be using during an election campaign. Well, of course, he would. Uh, and, and just as you know, the the liberals did, you know, when the conservatives were in power. I mean, this is all about the one-upsmanship that's going on right now. And and you know, this is soundbite politics. We all understand that now. Uh, but I still think, and I'm not justifying the government's position here. Uh, right now, we're laser focused on COVID and the vaccination program. I mean, you know, the we scandal and all that stuff. The other yeah, there's, there's there's an odor to to all of that stuff, uh, but right now I think Canadians are more focused on, hey, you're going to get my injection for me or not? And, well, and what's happening? Right. I mean, these, these are all titillating things going on, but that's not where people's heads are at right now. They're wondering how long they're going to have to line up for a needle, yeah, and, and when they get that needle, that's what they're concerned about right now. They're concerned about they're praying to God that this thing gets over soon, everybody gets vaccinated, we can get on with their lives. That's where their heads are at. It's not, it's not about what's happening in Ottawa at some committee about the WE scandal. Believe me, they're, you know, the majority of the Canadians, and I, you know, it's, people are going to say, well, what do you know what the majority of Canadians know? But I, I can tell you, I would bet that's what the majority of Canadians are concerned about, and it's certainly not what's going on there. We're just about out of time, but you've got to remind you, just because you're talking about the vaccination scandal, our, our friend and, and colleague David Aiken, of course, from Global Up in Ottawa, yeah. uh, said yesterday that part two of the AG's report dealing with the vaccination program is expected out sometime in late September. I will bet you dollars to donuts, Badger, that the election is going to be held before that report comes out. Oh, I would think so. <laughs> but that's the cynical part of me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, have a great weekend. Always yeah. great talking with you. Okay, Bill. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Richard Brennan, of course, former journalist who covered uh, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to get back to the discussion and the debate that's going on about the Supreme Court ruling yesterday that essentially said that uh, the federal government's carbon pricing program is constitutional in all ways. Uh, there could have been a partial 
uh, verdict here, but uh, it was by a six to three vote, but a uh, split vote. But nonetheless, uh, those that were in support said, uh, yeah, go ahead with this. Uh, a lot of folks disagree with this. A lot of folks disagree with actually the way that the court handled this. Uh, I want to bring Dan McTeague into the conversation. Dan, of course, is president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. And if you go to their webpage, and I encourage you to do so, uh, you'll see his, uh, his uh, blog for today, uh, which talks about this. And we're uh, so pleased to welcome our good friend Dan McTeague back to the program. Dan, I hope you're doing well. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, good to be here, and thanks for having me once again, Bill. Uh, the debate rages. As I mentioned in my commentary this morning, I said with the ruling, uh, I said you could probably assume that the legal battle is over, uh, but the political battle will rage on for a long time to come. Well, the legal battle is over, uh, and that's the problem, is that it should have been simply a legal issue. Uh, it turned out to be uh, anything but. And, of course, uh, when I look at the opening statements of the Chief Justice, who spoke on behalf of the other five uh, who joined him, uh, as opposed to the three who didn't, it uh, it could have very well read as talking points that the Prime Minister himself puts out on diversity and culture and all these other things that really have nothing to do with the pith and substance, as they say, of the uh, of the uh, the question before them. And uh, you know, rather than simply dealing with the constitutionality, which I think everyone is good with, uh, where there would be no issue, my first observation was, wow, <laughs> you're going to actually say that. Uh, uh, make political statements, the likes of which uh, you delve into areas of science, and, and much of that is still very much contested, regardless of what people are trying to say, and you know, shutting down the debate, shut up and pay up, which is sort of the approach of the Greens and the federal Liberal government. Uh, the concern that I have is that we have now uh, a Chief Justice and six members of the court straying into areas well beyond uh, the question at hand and well beyond their competence. Uh, we know, of course, that, uh, uh, that, you know, you're free to say whatever you like, and Chief Justices uh, should and ought to be beyond reproach. The problem, however, is that making kind of decisions that, uh, you know, stray into the political sphere, uh, in my view, is, uh, is something that uh, is, uh, is beyond the pale. And, of course, uh, my bigger concern here is that, rightly, this brings not just uh, questions about the membership of the Supreme Court. It also very much brings, in some respects, the judicial decision, right or wrong, uh, into a position of weakness, because it was really primarily premised on a political thought, a political notion, as opposed to a legal one and a constitutional one. Uh, I am not a uh, a total expert in these fields, but I, you know, <laughs> I was a budding student of constitutional law, was there in 1982 when my uh, minister, Paul Cosgrove, sat on the dais uh, when uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II uh, signed our charter rights into, uh, into, into law. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, being taught by people like Peter Russell, the University of Toronto, familiar with uh, Peter Hogg, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, these are all names. I'm throwing these out there because I want people to understand that this is well beyond what we would normally consider to be the grounds on which uh, judicial decisions ought to be made. It's landmark, it's also precedent-setting, and it sets uh, you know, very much a, a constitutional problem because provinces now uh, can see the federal government using what's called residual powers to pretty much justify anything. And I think that's uh, perhaps a problem on the legal side. There's a lot to unpack here, and because I, 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 I read your piece this morning more than a couple of times, and I'm trying to, you know, juxtapose that with the court decision. And I, I can tell you this, Dan. I mean, in all the the, it's been years now since this has been going on. Every time we've had a discussion or a debate about this on my program, I've always cautioning uh, people to said, "Look, at, let's let's be clear here. The Supreme Court is being asked to talk about whether or not the the, the feds have the legality, the legal right to do this. They're not going to comment about the efficacy of the policy, uh, but they did." 
Well, so I'm thinking all these years I've been saying that, uh, maybe I should have been talking to the court because I was expecting, and, and by the way, I, you know, that element of it, that uh, that they do have uh, jurisprudence over this, I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I, when it's something as large as the environment, you can't say the environment stops here, and I don't think yep. you can have 10 different environmental policies and, and think that you're going to get it. So that's fine, but they went beyond that, and that really surprised me. Well, it surprised me because it's all based on and premised on Canada signing the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, an agreement which, by the way, no Canadian voted on. And uh, no Canadian, uh, to my understanding, is quite familiar with its ultimate implications. This is not a etched in stone. We're not legally obliged to following that particular order, and the government could simply reverse it. Why this is critical is that if the judicial, uh, you know, the members of the Supreme Court were really trying to put this issue to rest, uh, they've actually wound up uh, unwittingly and perhaps uh, consequentially uh, creating much more uh, pushback and furor because we're not even at the point yet where their decision really says that provinces like Quebec or Nova Scotia, which have a different carbon system, which by the way is half of what we're paying here in Ontario, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing that will stop the federal government from saying, hey, Quebec, you're, we don't like your system, it's not charging people enough. Uh, you know, you're going to have to reverse it. Then, of course, we have a different crisis on our hands, and a real existential one in terms of the Confederation. But what this also suggests to me, Bill, is that the, uh, the folks uh, on the Supreme Court never took into consideration the deep, significant impacts this is going to have on consumers. If they're going to stray into politics, then why not simply say we have no interest in the fact that people are going to be paying an extra $800, $900 a year to keep their house warm, uh, that the carbon tax will not, uh, both of them, the CFS, the Clean Fuel Standard, and the existing carbon tax, uh, which, of course, has not been tested in court and has not been tested. Uh, the public was told very specifically in the last election, a year and a half ago, the Liberals would not go above $50 a ton. Another $170 a ton plus regulations plus a Clean Fuel Standard. All these things were set aside. And, and what we have here is six of ten members of the, of the Supreme Court cherry-picking issues and really advancing their own personal views as opposed to treating the law or interpreting the law as uh, one would expect of our of our uh, uh, members of the Supreme Court. And so for that reason, they've invited uh, a far greater storm than one in which they were trying to address. And no doubt it had to be, a decision had to be made. I think a lot of us would have said, fine, judge this on its merits. But the fact that you have strayed, not just once, but several times, and made statements that are... Uh, really based on faulty climate modeling, based on uh, climate activism, in my view, um, suggests that uh, our judicial actors have now really become political actors. And if they really want to make laws in this country, they ought to take off their ermine suits and put on uh, put their names on the ballot, as I did many times, uh, and uh, test their views. But don't impose these things from above. You know, sitting back in the comforts of $330,000 a year, not worrying about the consequences of your decision, and more importantly, advancing your own personal piccadillos, which have little to do with the case at hand. Here's, I want to get your read on this because, I, 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 and by the way, you're one of the more most learned people I know on this in the whole country. So, uh, you know, don't don't downplay your expertise on this because you, you you're there, and uh, people look and and expect uh, to get that kind of input from you. But the, if the issue is going to be carbon pricing, 
Uh, I, I'm looking at, uh, well, for instance, the countries that are already doing this. Sweden is. All of the countries in the European Union are Switzerland, New Zealand, Australia, South Korea, Japan. Yesterday, as, as you know, Dan, the American Petroleum yeah. Institute, which is one of the, I guess, the biggest oil lobby in the United States, actually endorsed carbon pricing and said it is a cleaner, a clearer, rather, more transparent approach than the patchwork of different regulations, which almost sounds like the Supreme Court decision. So, I, so I think there's some merit to carbon pricing. I think the debate should be is how do you enact a policy like that? Uh, you know, Preston Manning was in favor of carbon pricing. You know, in, when he was, uh, you know, it's still in, in federal politics, but he doesn't like the way the, the liberals are doing that. Shouldn't we be focusing on that part of the debate? We should, and and we should be looking at uh, what countries are doing. Uh, on the very day that the Supreme Court made this decision, Britain announced it would not be pursuing a carbon tax policy, but they would instead uh, move towards emission pricing. In other words, looking at industries and going after them as opposed to puni- you know, uh, punitive action against consumers. Why that's well, isn't critical. that sort of like cap and trade, though? Yes, but it is. But here's the, de- here's the deal. Uh, you have two carbon taxes. You have one that's dealing with emissions, the Clean Fuel Standard, which Trudeau had, uh, you know, uh, Kate, uh, unveiled on the 17th or 18th of December, over and above the carbon tax. Now, every and I wrote about this bill back in October when we released yep. the LFX study. No climate economist or purist or someone who believes in carbon taxes would ever recommend you put two taxes and other regulations over and above the one carbon tax that you have because it distorts price signals. Well, guess what? Here in Canada, we are the only country in the world, arguably the coldest country in the world, that is going to impose not one, but two forms of taxation over and above all these other regulations without taking into consideration the fact that we've already become a relatively clean country. I mean, think about it, Bill. Down the street from you, we've had hydro, clean hydro for 120, 110, 115 years. First ones to adopt the Nikola Tesla, uh, you know, uh, forms of uh, mm-hmm. hydro uh, transmission. We've had nuclear reactors uh, in my old riding in Pickering going back to the 1970s, early 70s, late 60s. We've achieved much. And unfortunately, we made the big transitions away from coal to natural gas backups and other things many, many years ago. And yet we signed an agreement which basically commits us, now with the support of the Supreme Court of Canada, to doing something that no other country would be crazy enough to do, and that's to double our taxation on carbon. It's going to ruin the economy because, of course, not just manufacturers, not just farmers, not just consumers are going to be hard, hard hit everywhere. Grocery stores, back to your your transportation fuels, we're also going to see a loss of jobs, a drop in GDP. My goodness, the cost of the rebates alone are going to cost the federal government by 2030 an average of $24 billion a year in debt servicing. I don't see how this is sustainable, and I think that's where you're going to lose people. Yes, we're on board with this, but if the cost-benefit of doing this is far greater and outweighs the benefits of environmental aspects, I think you're going to lose every Canadian ultimately on this, and unfortunately... The judges will be left simply with the decisions of judges and those in in the uh, in, in government and the elite in Ottawa uh, from continuing down this belief that somehow we can punish Canadians as a means of saying, "Hey, we're the trendiest uh, when it comes to uh, carbon taxes around the world." To, to try to bring this to a point, and, and I wish you know, I, they could do that in Ottawa, uh, because we're really <laughs> circling around here. And I, I know, I know, I'm, I'm asking for the impossible, but. You know, even as late as yesterday, of course, Aaron O'Toole was being asked about this, and of course, he's he's on record as opposing carbon pricing. We know that. 
Uh, bring me another plan. In other words, give Canadians a choice, because, Dan, most people, as you well know, uh, don't have time or the inclination to delve into this to the extent that they probably should. We're more concerned about when am I going to get my vaccination, when's this going to happen, yep. when am I going to get my job back. Uh, they're not laser-focused on this right now. But if the, if the Conservatives came back and said, this is our plan, uh, whether it's a cap-and-trade plan or something else to say, and it's better, but all O'Toole is saying, I've got a better plan, which is the same thing Andrew Scheer said, which is the same thing Stephen Harper said, uh, Give me a plan B that we can say, oh, let me compare these two. We haven't First even received all, that yet. Let, let's understand what Canadians have already done. And let's re-amend the, uh, the Paris Climate Agreement to say that if Canada sells natural gas to China or India, it gets a credit for that. Currently, we have the cleanest options of energy availability and diversity anywhere in the world. There's no one that matches us. Uh, why are we not allowed to get credit for selling a lot more LNG, natural gas, to places like China so that they don't build out more coal plants. Remember, China gets a pass until 2030. They can continue to increase their emissions. That's the first thing. Let's recognize what we can do and the faults of that Paris Climate Agreement. We need to pull away from it and and, and say, if we're going to adopt this, we have to be given credit for the great things Canada does. We're the third largest uh, holder of energy supplies anywhere in the world and potentially even greater than that. The second thing, I think, is to look at what we've done in places like, and I'm using my own, you know, my own background in, in automotive. Look at the advances in the past 20 to 30 years on automotive. Those have come because of regulation, not by punishing consumers, but the average emission of a vehicle today is one seventeenth what it was just 25 years ago. We can achieve these things without harming our economy and without harming consumers. I think that's the direction Mr. O'Toole should go. However, he is going to have to make a declaration. Is there a climate change? Sure, there is. But is it caused by humans? I think he can make it a safe argument that there are a number of factors behind why the climate is changing without getting into this back-and-forth political argument, ad hominem attacks of being a denier and things like that. Because at the end of all of this, it doesn't serve Canada's interests to go down this road of punishing itself with bad policies that are really meant to impress people around the world who aren't prepared to do the same thing and, and carry the heavy weight that Canada does. Remember, you know, and I said it before, Bill, we are the coldest country on the face of this planet. If we think we can get through with windmills and uh, with solar uh, power without uh, backup uh, energy generation, such as uh, natural gas or oil, and we can run our economy without fossil fuels, good luck with that. But talk to the people in Texas about what happened to them six weeks ago and California six months ago in the summer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and that's the reality of this whole situation. And, 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 and again, I'll just, I know we're just about out of time here. Uh, I wish we could have a discussion and a debate about this and, and talk about the alternatives and the implications of this because uh, uh, we're, we're kind of spinning our wheels right now. The decision really didn't solve anything. And, and with a federal election probably just a couple of months away, if not weeks, uh, this is going to rear its ugly head again. And, and we're going to get stuck in the rhetoric instead of the facts. And that's, that's, yep. that's worrisome to me. Uh, I encourage people. Go, go ahead. For diesel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, leave them with that. That's that. I always leave them with that front, that last cogent point. Uh, go to the webpage, Canadians for Affordable Energy. There's some great literature there about this. Dan, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Have a great weekend. You too, Bill. Thanks for having me. Bye bye. Take care, Dan McTeague, of course, who's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about one of the more uh, controversial aspects of uh, the provincial government's policy during the pandemic. Uh, it's not just about lockdowns, although that's right at the top of the list, too. But it's the education system and the way they have dealt with it or, and, and some of the decisions that have been made about this, uh, you know, vis-a-vis at-home learning versus in-classroom learning, the precautions or lack of precautions that some would suggest uh, that were taken in the classroom, which has actually motivated a number of parents to pull the 
their kids out and opt for the online learning as opposed to being in the classroom. Uh, and now the government is proposing an idea that might make this kind of learning, remote learning, a permanent part of the curriculum. Global's Tina Trujetti has the details. The Ford government is looking at making remote learning a permanent option for students. About 20% of them have been enrolled in that this year. The Globe and Mail has had a look at a confidential document from the Ministry of Education, and it has been shared with teachers' unions and administrators. It says if legislation is introduced and passed, parents could enroll their kids for full-time synchronous learning as early as this fall. Even though there are still many unknowns in the ongoing fight against COVID-19, the school boards in Ottawa, for example, have already asked families to choose between in-person and online classes for September. A spokesperson for the Education Minister says investments for online learning and broadband were announced as part of the budget yesterday. For now, though, consultations continue. The head of the OSSTF isn't too impressed. Harvey Bischoff told the paper there's no evidence yet that remote learning has been successful. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, let's uh, talk to Harvey Bischoff about this. Harvey, of course, is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, Harvey, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Glad to join you. Uh, I was kind of surprised by this announcement. Uh, I was always under the impression uh, that the, the whole reason that money and, and resources were being dumped into online learning was because, for the most part, there was a concern about safety in the classroom because of the pandemic. Uh, absent the pandemic, and we are going to get there someday, uh, is this even necessary? Uh, I, you know, what I've been saying is I don't know what problem is there, it is that they're trying to solve. Um, you've got a minister who has gone around saying um, that, that it's critical that we have students in in-person in uh, learning. One of the few things with which I happen to uh, agree with him, absolutely face-to-face learning is the best environment for the vast, vast majority of students. And now he turns around and talks about making a, a permanent um, online learning option. I don't know how you reconcile those contradictions or how you trust anything this guy says. Well, I have noticed, and as you know, we've done an awful lot of programming about what's going on and the re- impact that the education system is having on families and on students, for that matter. And, and I, unless I'm missing something, Harvey, I have not heard nor have I seen a large hue and cry to say, hey, this is a great idea. Let's do this all the time. On the contrary, I mean, it, it was absolutely necessary that we have an online learning, uh, you know, what we've been calling emergency remote learning uh, plan in place. Uh, and it could have been a lot more detailed and a lot more thorough, but at least to have something in place to support students during times they couldn't be in, in classrooms uh, was absolutely necessary. But that doesn't mean that it that it matches up with uh, with the quality of face-to-face learning. And uh, you know, my resident 16-year-old uh, knows what a struggle it is to learn that way. We know how hard it is, and I think parents and students across the province uh, largely share that opinion. Well, and what I have heard uh, to that point is uh, frustration from parents. Uh, that You know, they, they figure, hey, you're forcing me to be a teacher. I mean, no matter what they learn uh, during that session, I've got to go back and talk to them about it. I'm not qualified to do this. And know uh, we get angry. We get frustrated with each other. It's just a terrible situation. Uh, okay, let's do more of that. <laughs> Excuse me. Where's the rationale here? And, and, and they, provided, they provided no rationale. They provided no evidence that it's a good idea. Um, and so then you have to wonder, if they can't support the idea with evidence that this is good for students, good for pedagogy, what's the real purpose behind this? And I think in the end, I mean, I can only conclude that online learning is cheaper than in-person learning, and, and they're looking to pursue the cheapest option. 
Well, uh, yeah, because, I mean, what, what the, the pandemic, of course, has shown, as you and I have discussed in past discussions, uh, some of the shortcomings in the education system, the funding, of course, from the, the, the ministry is one thing. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the condition of a, uh, the learning environment, the bricks and mortar in some of these schools, they're so antiquated and, frankly, uh, dangerous uh, situations uh, because of the lack of, uh, of work that's been done on them or the lack of maintenance that's been done on them. Uh, are, are we trying to move people out of the classroom instead of spending the money on the things that should have been spent on? Yeah, I don't. I don't know what else you could conclude. Um, here they are offering this as a as a permanent measure. Um, when again, you know, there's there's no evidence to support uh, that it's a good idea. Um, and so, when you look at a government that has failed to adequately support the education system, which has, in real terms, reduced education funding, um, you know, which tried but was unsuccessful in removing ten thousand teachers from our classrooms. Um, you, you know that this is this is not a government that is uh, that is committed to supporting publicly funded education. On, let's get back to the elementary elements of this, and I, I don't mean school. I mean I'm talking about of, of education in itself. Uh, even the minister, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, has said that no, the best possible scenario is to have them in class, uh, and I agree. Uh, and and because I see, and and you know I taught in college many, many years ago, but I've, I haven't been in an in a elementary or high school classroom for a long, long time. But I, I, I think there are some shortcomings, some things that happen in the classroom uh, with 10, 15, 20 other students that you're not going to get remotely, even if you're doing a Zoom meeting. Uh, the interactions, the social aspects of this, and I don't just mean, hey, making friends, but I'm talking about different perspectives, different people. Uh, that's absent in online learning to a, to a large extent. And, and I think that's a, a huge element of education. You know, we've heard we've heard the medical experts say over and over again that they're concerned for students' social emotional development for their mental health when they are are in remote learning situations. Um, and again, you know, I agree with that. Um, th- their best environment for the vast majority of students, and there are special cases. Uh, you know, a student, let's say, with an anxiety disorder who maybe for a period of time can't attend school. They need they need assistance. They need support, and you know, hopefully, you get them back. But but overall, vast majority of kids do better and develop better when they're working alongside uh, other students. Absolutely. Well, and again, I'd like to get your read on this because this is just an observation on my part. Uh, because I know some parents that are homeschool their kids and others that that have gone on this online situation. Uh, I, it, the, the fact that you're doing this in isolation to a certain extent, I mean, it, you've got a computer screen there, but you're not having these interactions. Uh, uh, my concern is that uh, the worst-case scenario here is that you end up with somebody with a rather myopic approach. I mean, you can teach somebody math and, and how to read and things like that, but when you're getting into some of the other elements of education, uh, well, I, I, I could use an example of a certain parliamentary assistant that seems to have a very myopic view on, on life and, and other people's opinions, uh, and, and I'm not suggesting that everybody who gets homeschool or goes on that line is going to end up like that uh but you know the, the chances of indoctrination as opposed to education can be there and, and i'm concerned about that uh and, and i know they're going to come back and say well all these teachers are all left-wingers anyway and they're indoctrinating kids there's an exchange of ideas and, and you don't necessarily get that in, in this situation in this scenario and a lot of people aren't comfortable in front of a computer yeah and you know uh Teachers, other educators, kind of represent the, the full spectrum of uh, political views across uh, across society. In my experience, um, but I think that's right. You know, I mean, uh, we, we're in a we're in a uh, an economy now that where skills are important. Uh, you know, hard skills are important, but soft skills are critical as well. 
um, you know, in a service economy, in, in an economy that, that runs the way ours does. You need those soft skills, and those soft skills come from uh, from experience of interacting with people, uh, with that exchange of views, as you say, uh, with learning how to, you know, how to support your opinions when you're when you're. Uh, talking with others, all of those, uh, just getting along, cooperating, all of those soft skills are absolutely crucial to our economy right now, and I don't see that you can develop those nearly as well in remote learning situations. Of course, you've heard this, Harvey. Well, you've heard this since the whole thing started, what, 12 months ago now. Uh, but even with the, the, the concerns that you've raised and, and, and others have raised about this, is that, wow, these are just teachers protecting their jobs. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, I don't know why any group of workers wouldn't want to protect their jobs. So I, you know, I don't make any apologies for that. But the fact is, you can draw a straight line from, um, you know, the size of classes, for example, to the other supports that students get, students get from education assistants, from, from, you know, psychological services, from speech and language pathologists, all of whom, uh, you know, work in school boards across the province. All of those things lead to greater student success, to greater student development, um, and that's that's really undeniable. So what we're really protecting in the end is the quality of the economy that Ontario students will graduate into, the quality of the civic and, and social life that they'll graduate into. Um, those things can't be done uh, as successfully by shortchanging education. I want you to, for our, the sake of our listeners, uh, talk a little bit about something, a point you raised yesterday about a leaked document uh, from the Ministry of Education last year, which spoke about maximizing revenue generation from the provincial school system. Uh, is this government at the point now where they're trying to monetize education? I have, I have no doubt. Um, and, and, you know, that might sound conspiracy-minded until you see that leaked document that talks about exactly that, until you see how relentlessly they pursued e-learning um, for, for what purpose? And I can, uh, you know, I, I believe that, that there is a money trail ultimately that will be followed. Um, when you see that they're trying to uh, build a standalone infrastructure for e-learning uh, that could be sold off to the highest bidder, um, all of it uh, underpinned by the fact that they themselves said they wanted to maximize revenue generation from the publicly funded education system, which is entirely not its purpose, and in fact is a perversion of its purpose. Uh, the education system is an investment in kids and in our future. Um, it's not meant to generate revenue for a government, but, but you know, they're the ones themselves who said it. So, so you know, hardly a conspiracy on my part. I, I, I want to get your perspective on something else here, too. Uh, and again, we don't know all the details. Uh, they were pretty short on, on exactly how they thought this thing was going to roll out. Uh, but what is this, this partnership that they seem to be proposing with TVO? Yeah, so this is this is what I was referring to uh, just a moment ago in terms of creating this this standalone infrastructure for mm -hmm. student access to e-learning, also to get e uh, TVO to develop the e-learning courses. Um, you know, all of which mystifies me. You have an education infrastructure in Ontario. It's built through the Ministry of Education and school boards. There are, of course, enormous amounts of expertise and experience residing within. Uh, within that infrastructure, and yet they want to build this standalone thing. And that's wh why would you want to do that um, other than, you know, potentially to have uh, an asset that you could sell off in the future. Um, but, you know, that's the role they're giving to TVO and, and what sense it makes to take that out of the hands of the people who have been delivering education in Ontario uh, for all these decades. Uh, I, I just don't understand well, and, and look, this is not a knock against TVO. I mean, I support that. I think they they, they, they have a place in, in, in the media here. Uh, they do some wonderful programming there. Uh, but 
I, I, essentially, I don't think part of their mandate is to develop an education system. I mean, that that's supposed to fall within the ministry and the boards of education around the province, is it not? Exactly right, and and I wouldn't want anybody to think I was knocking uh, TVO either. And they do absolutely uh, some really some really good programming, uh, and they have a role as as kind of a support um, to the education system. But they're not the education system. That's already in place, um, and and you know it doesn't make sense to me to transfer that responsibility uh, over to this other function. So where are we? Where are we on this right now? We're we're um, supposedly in a stage of consultation, um, but I've never seen uh, this government consult with anything you know anything like a genuine approach to consultation. I've never seen them take uh, uh, you know any suggestions we have and amend the direction they were going in. So I believe they are ticking a box to say we've done our consultation, so the minister can get to a podium and make that claim again, which he does so frequently. Uh, but it's never been real consultation. It's never been meaningful consultation. So unless there is significant public blowback from this plan, um, and I think there may well be, then I expect them to, to pursue this. I, I hope that they hear from stakeholders like us, uh, which they will and are, uh, but that they also hear from parent groups, from school boards. We need school boards to stand up for education and for themselves and push this plan back so that we don't start to see um, the piece-by-piece erosion of what has been a very fine education system. Well, and that's one of the concerns I've got, too. I mean, the only time I thought they really and truly tried to get uh, public uh, input into this was uh, when they opened the hotline about the sex ed program years ago, and they didn't like the results, so they just dismissed them and said it was it was rigged. Uh, so they seem to have developed another system. So we're not quite sure who they're talking to and what's being said in situations like that. But I mean, you know, how silly of it is us to actually I think that you know we could have public discussion about something as important as education. I guess I'm really asking too much. This, you know, this astonishes me over and over again. They've done this before that they have these secret consultations that where they won't they won't uh, reveal the data that they're collecting and so forth. Why in heaven? Like I understand that secrecy when it comes to procurement uh, and certain sure. government contracts and so forth. It's it's absolutely necessary. But education is a public good, and 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 the public deserves to have their say about these things. So to do these things in secret as if it were a military operation, it just it, it leads you back to questioning. What is the purpose behind all of this? And, and it makes me very suspicious. Well, uh, it's as I, and I'm sure a lot of other people too, but judging on some of the comments I've seen over the last 24 hours or so, uh, not the end of this for sure, Harvey. We'll talk about this again in the future, I'm sure. Thanks for being with us today, though. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.